are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. The King of Comedy, which came out in 1983 and was directed by Martin Scorsese. It stars Robert De Niro, Jerry Lewis, Diane Abbott, Shelley Hack, Frederick de Cordova, and Sandra Bernhard. The genre would be satirical comedy. To be the truth, you've got to start at the bottom. I know, that's where I am, at the bottom. That's a perfect place to start. So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest king of comedy, Rupert Hupkin. His name is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pupkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert. Pupkin. P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight, the whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Robert De Niro. Jerry Lewis. In a Martin Scorsese picture. The King of Comedy. Having now rewatched this film a few times, I have to say that I keep finding myself surprised by just how funny it is. Especially during the whole second half of the movie, which is supposedly when it's getting darker. Which it is, technically. And the more I rewatch this, the more obviously it feels modeled on the themes and structure of Taxi Driver, which came out seven years prior. Which is not to say that Scorsese is cribbing from himself. He's just taking the time-tested trope of the disturbed, single-minded loser and bringing him into a new arena. And that goes even beyond celebrity worship, which is a big part of the story here. It's that obsession with becoming famous, which back in 1983 was mostly focused on getting on television. The center of that obsession happens to be Jerry Langford, who was a towering talk show host figure on that level that Johnny Carson was back in those days. And he's adroitly played by Jerry Lewis in an acid turn, which impresses me more every time I revisit this movie. De Niro plays the loser who is shadowing, well, really stalking him, named Rupert Pupkin. Great source of humor for the movie, too. We're never clear on what he does for a living. But apparently he lives in his mom's basement where he has constructed an elaborate walk-in diorama of the stage of Langford's show with life-size cardboard cutouts of both Langford and Liza Minnelli sitting on a fake couch who Rupert can pretend to banter with. Ah, oh, boy, I'll tell you. Every time you come back from a tour, I don't know what it is, but there must be something in the air or the tour. It really becomes you. It's like you become rejuvenated. I don't know what it is. Isn't that so, everybody? Isn't that so? Hey, that's the truth. I'll tell you, it's amazing. It's amazing. You look wonderful. And, yeah, I know. You look wonderful, too, Jerry. I wasn't leaving you out. <laughs> Bro? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. He's wonderful. You're wonderful. I, tell you, I don't know what I'd do without you. Rupert, the bus is here. It's early. Try to be on time for once. 
So it's pretty clear off the bat that Pupkin is a very disturbed individual, and De Niro is pretty unrecognizable from other recent roles, with a ridiculous flat haircut paired with a bushy mustache, which just has him looking more like the sad sack comic relief third lead on a sitcom than anyone who could command the stage as a top-flight stand-up comedian, which he aspires to be. Yes, De Niro the actor is actually quite funny in this performance, even while his character is decidedly not. Well, at least intentionally. Pupkin comes off as creepy and off-putting for the most part, though often comically so. One bizarre moment which just had me laughing out loud, I'm not sure why, was when in the middle of a whole afternoon of just sitting in the waiting room of Jerry Langford's production company for a non-existent appointment which he has deluded himself into thinking is happening, Rupert just starts staring upwards at the ceiling, <laughs> causing the secretary sitting in front of him to look aghast. He then just says, Is that cork? I don't know what it is. Is it dripping on you? No, I was no. looking at the patterns. Uh, you know, cork is good for sound. In Rupert's delusional world, this is what passes for small talk. And as we delve further into these delusions, we see Rupert just talking shop with Jerry, guesting on his show, and even eventually having an on-air wedding with Rita, a bartender slash former high school classmate whom he has been awkwardly trying to date, played by Diane Abbott, who at the time was actually the real-life wife of Robert De Niro. And she does an adept job of portraying someone put in some very awkward situations, doing her best to let him down easily. And I do mean awkward. There is a supposed date Rupert takes her on to Jerry's actual home around halfway through the movie, which is just a masterclass of the type of awkward silence interplay and slapstick, which would be further perfected decades later on shows like The Office. I told them you were not here. That's right, he did. Yes, they did, Jerry. They were really very helpful. We took an earlier train because there wasn't anything else until after one. So anyway, I brought the work. It's right here, all ready, all ready and set to go. So, where is everybody? What everybody? <laughs> what everybody? <laughs> but the guest, yeah? Let me tell you the truth, we're getting a little hungry. You know, I could have the both of you arrested. <laughs> you could have us arrested. Well, of course you could have us arrested. I mean, there's no way that we can prove that we belong here. He's great. When he comes up with an idea, he's terrific. Really, I never thought of that. You should have. You know what we can do? We set up a story where you invite all your friends out for the weekend and you throw them all in jail. <laughs> That's terrific. That's terrific. <laughs> What's the matter? Lighten up. Let's get to work on that after we work on this, of course. How did you get here? Scorsese and his screenwriter, Paul Zimmerman, were really ahead of the curve here when it comes to darker, more offbeat type of comedy. And of course, the story gets even darker, but funnier from there. The last half of the movie pretty much focuses on the kidnapping of Jerry Langford by Rupert and his friend, or partner in crime, Masha, played with cringy glee by Sandra Bernhardt, who pretty much steals the movie for long stretches here. You see, Masha has one singular focus, and that's Jerry Langford. She's a full-on stalker, so she decides to partner with Rupert so that he can leverage the situation to get a special performance on Langford's show while she just wants a crack at Jerry. And Sandra Bernhardt's sequence, along with Jerry Lewis who is comically wrapped in literally plumes and plumes of masking tape. It's cringy, creepy, and sublimely funny. But somehow I just want to do that. I just want to, like, dance. I just want to, like, you know, put on some Shirelles. I just, I want to be black. <laughs> Wouldn't that be insane? God, you know what? I wish I was, I, you know, I wish I was not, I wish I was Tina Turner. Just dancing through the room. 
Sandra Bernard is just playing to an audience of one here and seeing Jerry Lewis's silent grimace in response. Let's do something crazy tonight. Just get insane. I want to be crazy. I want to be nuts. I want to have some fun. God damn it. My doctor says don't have any fun. You can't have fun. No, you're not allowed to have a good time. You can't get crazy. See, I have to be in control. And I like being in control. But you know, for one night, I'd like to see myself out of my head. Wouldn't you like to see me out of my head? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be fabulous? I'm having a good time. And as for Rupert Pupkin, well, he does get his wish of landing a stand-up appearance on national TV. And part of what's so clever about that portion of the story is witnessing all of this hapless hand-wringing from network execs and producers over what to do. What really elevates this is that nobody gets out of this satire unscathed. Certainly neither a voracious audience of folks who will shove a stranger on the street just to nab someone's autograph, nor content creators who will spinelessly placate them. Beyond that, in the lead-up to Pupkin's TV appearance, we also have two pitch-perfect cameos by the late, great Tony Randall, who's now hosting that night's show, and the director himself, Morty Scorsese, playing, of course, the director. Bert, have you seen this stuff? I've gone over with the writers. I think it's fine. You think this is fine? My writing staff was executed in Central Park by the network firing squad. That's good. I think it's good. You're laughing at that? It's very good. Do me a favor. Do it, please. Why exactly, do I have to say this stuff? Exactly as it's written. It'll play for us. It'll be good for you. Trust me. You're the director. Can you help me? Yeah, take the tissues out of your collar and let's go. And the very ending... When we see all the crazy aftermath of Pupkin's on-screen appearance, it just invites more comparisons to Taxi Driver, which also has a similar wish-fulfillment scenario laid out at the end of the movie. Now, are we supposed to take the resolutions of either of these movies at face value? Well, it might not matter either way, because Scorsese had now twice stuck the landing with such challenging stories. In this case, he, Zimmerman, and De Niro all made their point. If we are all so eager to commodify celebrity, then we very well might deserve to have someone like Rupert Pupkin anointed as the latest king of comedy. Forty years later, that rings even more true. A lot of you are probably wondering why Jerry isn't with us tonight. Well, I'll tell you, the fact is he's tied up. And I'm the one who tied him. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know you think I'm joking, but believe me, that's the only way I could break into show business. By hijacking Jerry Langford. Right now, Jerry is strapped to a chair somewhere in the middle of the city. Well, go ahead and laugh. Thank you. I appreciate it. But the fact is, I'm here. Now, tomorrow you'll know that I wasn't kidding and you'll think I was crazy. But look, I figure it this way. Better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. (laughs) Which brings me to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop, which is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. This film opens pretty confidently, taking us right into the airing of the Jerry Langford show. And then the aftermath once it ends for that night. We see Jerry leave the back of the studio with a raucous crowd waiting outside, mostly zeroed in on him. We see Jerry enter his limo, and just as he enters, well, there's Masha, going crazy, which causes Jerry to exit the limo. The limo door is shut, and the camera takes us into the limo, where we can see Masha bashing against the window like a caged animal. And then, freeze frame, right on that. And a song kicks in. It's a nutso image for sure, but it's the image we see for the remainder of the opening credits. And the song that we hear play over this bizarre freeze frame as the credits start is the 1959 ballad, Come Rain or Come Shine, from the late, great Ray Charles. 
And it's a sweet, romantic song with sweet, romantic lyrics, featuring lots of brass and, of course, Charles's legendary crooning. And it clearly provides quite the contrast to the stark image behind the credits. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. One of the lingering questions about this movie 40 years after its initial release is obviously, why did no one seem to care when this movie came out? I mean, this was Scorsese's follow-up to the seminal movie Raging Bull, which is now considered one of the greatest films of the 1980s or any decade. You would have thought that there would have been some hype or anticipation with this being his follow-up, but this was a pretty quiet release by Fox in relatively few theaters. The movie actually never went wide, and while the reviews were solid, many critics found the film more strange than compelling. And as a result, this film was actually kind of a flop, grossing less than $3 million worldwide on a $20 million budget. Ouch. But the thing is, I do get how many did not find this movie funny upon release. I mean, this was 1983. There was nothing like this, nothing this savage as a comedy in movie theaters at that time. And this was also a great era for comedy, but a different type of comedy. This film came out within a few months of both Tootsie and Trading Places, both previous episodes, and are both comedy classics loaded with sharp observational humor. But those movies had protagonists to root for and character arcs. Just not the case here. Nope, we don't witness any such life lessons for Rupert Pupkin. So there was obviously a disconnect. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. At roughly the 45-minute mark, this movie comes closest to what you might consider an action sequence, as we see Jerry Langford walking semi-triumphantly through the streets of Manhattan on his way to the office. And along the way, he encounters folks in cabs passing by, construction workers up above, all wishing him well, until he has a comically bizarre exchange with a woman at a payphone. Morris, you will not believe who's coming down the hill. Jerry Langford, right? Right. Oh, Morris, please hold on. Jerry, would you please sign my order? Sign my magazine for me. Yeah. You're just wonderful. I've watched you your entire career. You're a joy to the world. Please, Morris, would you just please say something to my nephew Morris on the phone? He's in the hospital. I'm and sorry, I'm late. You should only get cancer. I hope you get cancer. Jerry? And from there, his walking commute just gets stranger and more treacherous as Jerry starts to notice someone walking behind him, following him apparently. It's Sandra Bernhard's Masha, wearing giant sunglasses, trying to look inconspicuous, and not really doing a good job of it. As she starts walking faster, so does he. And then suddenly, we just see Jerry sprinting across a crowded street, almost getting hit several times, until his run culminates in the sliding door's entrance of his building, where he slips in among several people slipping out. And as we see him going in, we see Masha there, and we also see Rupert coming for his appointment. All the stories converge together. The final category would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. At its core, the king of comedy is a satire. And pure satire is a very difficult thing to pull off, even for the most gifted filmmakers out there. 
I mean, just for examples, the Coen brothers, they kind of missed the mark twice, attempting to do this with Intolerable Cruelty and the Hutsucker Proxy. One of my all-time favorites, Spike Lee, he went way too ham-fisted when he tried one himself with Bamboozled. And even the great Brian De Palma, one of Scorsese's film school contemporaries, he also failed miserably with his adaptation of the best-selling satire, Bonfire of the Vanities. Ugh, that movie. Oof. To be able to tell a story which is compelling on the surface and which manages that delicate tonal balance between a critical message geared towards a subject matter and taking it to absurd extremes, it's truly akin to catching lightning in a bottle. And as far as I'm concerned, this film just nails that. We are taken into this world, which seems very current, well, at least as of 1983, following a character who seems somewhat relatable And then we watch as it's all picked apart, pretty savagely, while also still being very entertaining. At the time of release, nobody would have expected this particular type of film from Scorsese, which is likely a big reason why many didn't even know what to make of it. But he succeeds, as he has with his more overt crime dramas, flexing new muscles that we weren't even aware that he had at this point of his career. For one thing, this was one of the first films where he allowed extensive improvisation on set, often resulting in several great awkward moments. At least once in his life. Every man is a genius. And I'll tell you something, Ruth. It's going to be more than once in your life for you. It's going to be a number of times because you've got it. From what I've heard here, yeah, you've got it. And you're stuck with it. And I don't care if you wanted to get rid of it. You could. It's always going to be there. Now, I know there's no formula for it. I just don't know how you do it. And I'm not curious, mind you, because I want to use the material. I want you to understand that. I'm just curious because I don't know how you do it. I really have to ask you that. How do you, how do, you do it? I think it's that I look at my whole life and I I see the awful, terrible things in my life and turn it into something funny. He still had some stylish camera work resembling showier films that he'd done by this point like Taxi Driver or Mean Streets, but it's all sufficiently muted to help maintain a drier tone and keep the narrative focus more on the absurdity of some of these characters. For pulling off one of the most underrated films of his career while stretching his skills, Marty Scorsese is your MVP. My rating for The King of Comedy is five stars out of five. I have to say, over the past two weeks, it has been a fun exercise revisiting four films hailing from the same subgenre with similar themes and yet coming from four different eras. There's Taxi Driver from the 70s, there's this movie from the 80s, Falling Down from the 90s, and Joker from the 2010s. And all are very good films even though the two Scorsese ones rise far above the other two. You could even make a legit case that this movie is just a better version of Joker, as much as I like that film. Regardless, watching all four of them in succession would make a pretty entertaining film festival in itself. And one thing setting this film apart from the other three is that the other three films were actually hits, meaning that all these decades later, this has still been the most underseen movie of that bunch, which I would suggest that you remedy as soon as possible. Happy 40th anniversary to one of the best comedies of the 1980s and one of the best satires of all time. And if you're looking to watch The King of Comedy, it's currently streaming on Hulu and YouTube. And that ends another shameless review. Special shout out to my lovely wife Marlene Gershon for producing this podcast and to my lovely daughter Ella Gershon for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Cinema.